Sassy Saucy. <laughs> and good early evening, Tam Tam. You made it today in a slip of time. You've always got your paint holding on to your panties, getting here. <laughs> Literally, I was like, holding on, sliding in. I'm like, I got to get there right by six o'clock. <laughs> I know. Uh, Roxy's always like, oh, it's great. I'll be there 15 minutes before. And two minutes before, she's like, I made it. <laughs> I really don't know how you get your life done. I mean, see, between that and going down the squid game black hole, I I don't know how I'm getting anything. My goodness. Squid game, I actually think is one of the best written shows actually out there. It is so much more. And we're going to speak to our next guest about this too. You know, when I first saw it, I like the violence was so obviously graphic and uh, shocking, but I feel like the vi- uh, the violence was actually a set piece. And without it, we wouldn't, the stakes wouldn't be so high. We wouldn't care about the characters as much. The, the themes are about redemption and sacrifice and, you know, consumerism and how much you would fight for your life. And I just think that it's one of the best shows out there. My question to you, and I don't mm-hmm. know if I can be friends with you if you answer this wrong. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Do you watch the subtitles or do you watch the dub version? Because it's a completely <gasps> different show if you're watching the dub version. It is not the same actors. Oh, see, I yeah, we I think, but I think here we're getting the dubbed version because that's you the don't one have to. You go oh. into the Netflix and you change it. You need to listen to them talk in Korean and oh. then have the subtitles. It's a totally different performance. So, do you think it's like more just riveting that way? Like you get oh, it's more so out of much it? more riveting. Yeah. The dubbed, I think, the dubbed is really not great at all. So it's it just does- someone else act. You have to watch the subtitles. Okay, so it doesn't distract you too much to read the subtitles. No, wow, I, I love that. No, 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 no. It's okay. absolutely incredible. Highly recommend the subtitles. And okay. I would like to continue being your friend. So if you could please. <laughs> so this is it. This is the make it or break it. After this all is it. Years. If you don't watch subtitles, I'm out. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm watching the subtitles tonight. <laughs> Which goes to like my next guest and mm. is a good introduction, a good segue, because these types of shows with such graphic and gruesome violence are kind of out there. And, um, you know, we're also, true crime is such a thing right now when it comes to podcasts and even like, you know, the Gabby, like, what's her last name? I keep forgetting how to say her last name. Petito. Gabby, Petito. Petito. Gabby mm-hmm. Petito case. And that's caught the attention of the American public. And so this amazing man, Joseph Scott Morgan, has been in our lives, in my husband's lives for quite a while. And he is the youngest medical uh, legal death investigator in US history. He's a news commentator, professor, podcaster. Um, and my husband says it's his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows everything about these subjects. So I thought, why don't we get him on and really like delve into some of these true crime questions that people have? Yes. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with true crime. That's, you know, growing up, I used to watch these true crime shows with my mom and like most kids were watching like the peanuts gang and like Snoopy and, mm-hmm. and I was watching like 2020 and Dateline and like murder shows <laughs> with my mom. And I'm like, it's so fascinating to me. I love like the concept of like going right. in and like investigating and seeing like when you don't have answers, trying to find answers. So this mm-hmm. is going to be exciting. And why we're so invested in these types of subjects. So Joseph Scott Morgan, thank you for being here. Welcome. (laughs) Hey y'all. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yes. Your audience. Yes. So my first like biggest question is what is 
and you please really explain this. What, what is a, a death investigator? Uh, it means a couple of things to different, uh, to uh, various people. For me, in my context, um, it's not, a, it's not, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a homicide detective. Mm -hmm. That's something that the police do. Mm. Uh, a death investigator, or in my case, a medical legal death investigator. If you think about a homicide detective, it's kind of the eyes and the ears of the prosecutor. They're going to go out and find the bad guy, arrest them and prosecute them. And mm -hmm. they don't, contrary to what you see on television, they don't really have an interest in the deceased. It's kind of a means to an end. You know, they'll mm -hmm. tell you that they speak for the dead and all that sort of thing. But that's not reality. Uh, for mm -hmm. us, I am the eyes and the ears of the coroner or the medical examiner. There's two, there's two groups in America. We have coroners and medical examiners. Um, they kind of do the same thing. But, you know, in contrary to what you see on television, forensic pathologists, um, they don't go out to scenes. They, you don't have these physicians that are going out to all of these cases. It's people like me are mm -hmm. like formerly, like I did. And so I go out and I take a look at the bodies, I examine them, I contextualize them relative to the environment that they're found in, I examine their, their injuries in the immediate, uh, examine their medical history, mm -hmm. and examine the environment in which they live because, you know, we have a life that has been lived and mm -hmm. at the end, and you have to not just examine the, the body, but you examine that space that they inhabited, that world mm -hmm. that they inhabited, their friends, their family, you know, everything, everything about them so that you can come up with a definitive cause because you know what, at the end of the day, uh, families want answers. They want to know why their loved one has passed away. And it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be some kind of gory homicide. We cover everything from natural deaths to unfortunately suicides and accidents and undetermined deaths and of course homicides. Uh, but homicides kind of capture uh, the imagination of everybody because it's so mm -hmm. scary but mm -hmm. i'd say mm -hmm. probably less than two percent of all of the deaths that we deal with are homicides mm -hmm. um it's it's just not there's more suicides in this country we almost mm -hmm. three three to one mm -hmm. and you but you don't ever hear about that unless you know it's some high profile person you know which i commentate on on you know i've covered robin williams and any number of celebrities so-called that have taken their lives and those are sad. They are sad, but it, there's so many other people, you know, that have these stories that are untold that have led sad, lonely lives. And, but their end is just in, as important. I think you guys mm -hmm. would agree with that. And mm -hmm. they have a tale to be told. And so we're, we kind of, I guess, to wrap it all up, we kind of speak for those that can no longer speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Such an interesting concept. And, you know, certainly such a specific, um, like job that you're doing. So, <laughs> so growing up, like what mm -hmm. sort of made you want to go into this field? Was it something like an experience that you had something, you know, that happened yeah. in your childhood or was it just an interest that you had? Yeah. And this is kind of how I, I got connected with Sean Tam. Uh, mm -hmm. Sean read, first off, he read an article that I wrote for Vice magazine several mm -hmm. years ago. And it kind of it took off worldwide. I think it was reprinted in like seven different languages. And it was mm. called the life, the life and deaths of a medical legal death investigator. They actually did mm. a true crime edition. I was teaching college at the time and I, I had my students. It shows how ignorant I am. I had my students in class. I walked in one day and I said, 
are you guys familiar with Vice? And they were like, you know, immediately their heads all kind of snap around. They were like, yeah, why? Like, why's this old guy asking us about Vice? I said, they reached out to me when they still had a published magazine and they want me to write an article. They were like, oh my God, Professor Moore, you, Vice reached out to you? Yeah, write the article. And so it was by that that I kind of came to it. And then Sean actually read the article uh, and then he found out about my memoir. And um, I'd written a memoir and it was a, what's referred to as a therapeutic memoir. And it, it kind of encapsulated the life that I had led um, as a medical legal death investigator. A lot of people, some people were disappointed that our real true crime buffs because they thought it was all going to be gore. But I started talking about how death had personally affected me. And I, mm. in the book, I start out the book on actually one of the last scenes that I ever, that I ever worked. And, but I go back and tell the story in the second chapter of where my name came from, because I'm actually named after a homicide victim. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person that um, that I was named after had died 13 years before I was born. He was my great uncle. Mm-hmm. And the guy that had committed his, his homicide was actually released from prison. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a movie that came out many years ago called Star. And it mm-hmm. had Paul Newman in it. And it was based on the true story of the governor of Louisiana at that time back in the 50s. And he had released this killer that had killed my my great uncle and so my grandmother was my entire world I'm getting to the point mm-hmm. I promise my yeah. grandmother was my whole world and he was the oldest child and he was her brother and she had five sisters mm-hmm. and so they just hounded this guy for the rest of his life when he was every year they would send him like a dozen black roses on the anniversary of my uncle's death mm-hmm. he was the only male he was the oldest and they idolized him and worshiped him and his name was Joe or Joseph. And he was a union leader in Louisiana. And the guy had killed him over a painting contract mm-hmm. and shot him down in the middle of the road. So I was named after him. And then I guess years later, I was probably five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, my father attempted to kill my family, including me. And so as I kind of go through life, I'm, I'm I feel as though that I'm kind of, I have this weird kind of attachment or legacy to death and and I was prepared for a lot of things through some early childhood traumas and things that I had endured as a young man mm. and so when I, I made it down to my family's home um, in New Orleans where my extended family lives um, I, I was working in a hospital down there while I was going to college and started you know just I happened to meet one of the coroner investigators mm-hmm. and he was assisting with autopsies and I started I started out very young, uh, mm-hmm. college student. I was moving bodies in and out of the morgue at the time. The the parish they don't have counties. The parish morgue was being redone, and so I would move the bodies in and out, working at the hospital. And I became friends with the people at the corner. Next thing I know, I'm going to autopsies in my spare time, mm-hmm. and I'm learning. I've always been a science guy, and so I'm learning. And I realize that oddly enough, had an aptitude for it. I had an aptitude mm-hmm. for forensic pathology and for the study of death and trauma and kind of what makes things tick. I like to take things apart and, you know, in autopsies, you literally can do that and you understand form and function, you understand disease. And, and so mm-hmm. I had a way to interpret it and uh, I paid a price for it. You can't sally around with death your entire life and not be affected by it mm-hmm. and it kind of touches you um 
because in my writings, you know, I talk about how death is, um, in one writing, I talk about how death is kind of the, for the investigators, kind of like the slobbering drunk at the Christmas party. You try to get away from him, but he follows you around everywhere you go. He wants you to hear his tale. And I talk about that in my book. And, um, and that's the way it was for me. I was always having to be death's interpreter. Mm -hmm. You're kind of chained to it. And I, uh, anthropomorphize death in my in my writings and death becomes kind of like a person that accompanies me and and mm-hmm. how that kind of translates into who I became is mm-hmm. you walk around and you're always in fear you're in fear of death you're in fear everywhere you go you're fear in fear of losing your life because mm-hmm. the rest of the world just kind of wanders around they don't have any awareness of death most of the time you know mm-hmm. but for people in my field it's always in your face, You're always thinking about it, because unlike police officers, you don't, you don't break up a domestic disturbance, you don't find lost children, you don't do all of those things that you equate as far as the good part that police do. Mm-hmm. With me, it was death from the moment you walk in the door until, the, until you leave. Mm-hmm. And so um, that kind of informed my thinking you know, mm-hmm. along the way. And it, it brought out this kind of creative side in me that I never mm-hmm. thought that I possessed because the only thing mm-hmm. I'd ever written was, was technical reports, mm-hmm. you know? And so at the end of the day, uh, my wife told me, you got to get this stuff out of your system. And I wrote mm-hmm. it, I sat down to write my memoir initially because um, I didn't know why I wrote it. I wrote it to get mm-hmm. it out. I was one of those mm-hmm. kids in school. I hated when teachers would say, okay, today we're going to journal. Oh my God. It wasn't, it wasn't my thing. And then suddenly as a grown man, I suddenly realized that it was one of the healthiest things I could do. And it wound up turning into a book. It's so fascinating because I, I've always been very connected to death. I remember the first time I've never actually seen a dead body. Mm-hmm. And knock on wood, which will happen eventually. I have never really had anyone very close to me pass away. But I remember the concept of death when I was 12 years old. I was sitting in my bedroom and the thought of like, no matter if you're a religious person, because I know a lot of people say, well, there's a heaven and there's a hell, but no one's been there and come back and told the story, right? So it's all faith. <laughs> um, the concept of death came over me for the first time when I was 12 years old and I just had a complete panic. And I just have carried that with me from 12 years old onwards. Like every night before I fall asleep and Roxy has experienced this too, the idea of death has just overwhelmed me so much. And then my question to you is, since you see it all the time, does that, what has seeing so much death taught you about life and taught you about living, um, you know, cause it's not in my, I think about it so much and yet it's not in my world, but how has it changed you when it comes to the way you live? And yet, does it does it does it diminish yeah, sure. any fear of death you may have too? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, uh, I've I've had to grow a lot uh, mm-hmm. as a result of it. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a funny anecdote to begin with. Uh, keep in mind, I've I've got three kids. Actually, I've got four. One of my my son um, Isaac he passed away, and so mm-hmm. I um, and um, but I have three three children. 
And my girls, who were the oldest, uh, they grew up around me. They saw a lot of the sadness and they saw the stuff I would come home with and all that sort of thing. But they also would tell a funny story. Mm. Uh, we would go out to eat. And this kind of gives you an idea of, <laughs> of the way your mind works as a death investigator. We would go out to eat, go to a restaurant, and they're sitting, you know, there in their little, you know, we might take them to church or something afterwards and go eat a Sunday meal. And they're there in their pretty little dresses, you know, because mom likes to do the hair up in bows. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so we're sitting there and we're enjoying ourselves. And maybe they're eating a piece of chicken or a piece of ham or something. And they would be, you know, they were at a point where they could cut their food up and they would go to eat it. And it suddenly... I would be visualizing watching them eat and I would look at them and not really thinking about it. I would say, now chew that up. Do you realize I had a kid that choked to death on a piece of ham like that? And, you know, they would be taken back. And so it makes you acutely aware of it. But then you begin to think about, you know, does my eight-year-old really need to hear this? Do we need to be that hypervigilant in this world? And it does impact you. I think it impacts you greatly. And for me, you can't, you go nowhere where it's not, it, it, where it's not like in the in the back of your mind it's not it's not as I'm not as acutely aware of it as I mm. used to be when I would go to the more daily now I'm at a university campus you know the biggest concern you know that the people I'm around have is their social media working you know they're mm -hmm. all walking around mm -hmm. with their phones and mm -hmm. whatnot and kind of you know life passes them by but yet, you know, I sit there and every now and then I'll have like this kind of lucid moment and I'll, I'll look around after having taught a class and I'll think, you know, these kids, they, they don't, they think they want to learn forensics from me. And many of them say, Professor Morgan, I, I want to do exactly what you did for a living. And I'll say, be very, very careful about what you're saying because mm -hmm. you don't necessarily, because they glam it up. They think that it's, it's just going to be so intellectually stimulating and they'll be doing something so cool and yet to mm -hmm. a certain degree they will but you know what's kind of fascinating is when I was a very young man and I was living in New Orleans and I first started working for the coroner's office I'd go to like a party a cocktail party or something you know young 20 something guy that's doing this job very vain very full of myself and I'd go to a party and people would um would kind of gravitate toward me not that I'm anything fantastic it's just that they would find out what I did for a living mm -hmm. and it, the conversation would always start off hey we heard you work at the coroner's office I bet you've got some great stories tell us mm -hmm. stories and the next thing you know I'm like some shaman I'm sitting there and I'm mm -hmm. surrounded with people and they're drinking and they're everybody's gasping or laughing at the stories I'm telling but at the end of the day you know I'm thinking I'm carrying this burden of death with me everywhere I go Mm -hmm. these people say they want to hear my story, but they really don't. They want to be thrilled. And then they turn on their heels and they walk away. And then still at the end of the day, you're left with this burden of these things mm -hmm. that you've borne witness to that most people can't even begin to fathom, you know, and their, their wildest mm -hmm. fantasies mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter what you think you've seen or what you think you've been exposed to in the world of death investigation. No one has ever seen it all. And death will always surprise you. There'll be something, mm. there'll be something even more horrific you know, that'll just shock the conscience of everybody. It's like, you know, with Gabby right now, people are just, you know, I've never seen it. I've been doing this since 13. I've never seen so, so many people so fully engaged in something mm -hmm. like this.
You know, I think too, it's interesting. You're bringing up Gabby Petito because, um, that this case, um, which we can talk about, um, the latest developments of that too, but I also wanted to bring up the Derek Chauvin trial as well. Um, because that's, you know, I was riveted, especially during the court case and the sentencing and watching you on HLN, you know, kind of really explain to people, you know, from a scientific mind, like what was happening in those final moments. But what was interesting was that there was so much social media, you know, around and that people were taking videos and they were going up everywhere. And, um, you know, Gabby Petito, although we don't have video of, you know, what happened to her, Mm -hmm. we do have like a picture of what, you know, of the person she was and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what was sort of going on, you know, in the days leading up to. So how much of that now do you think that that um, will play in this case, in the Gabby Petito case? You know, it came up with Derek Chauvin in that trial, but you know, now too with, with uh, Gabby mm-hmm. Petito. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I got to tell you, wow, uh, high marks on that one uh, because I hadn't really made that correlation because mm-hmm. with Derek Chauvin, the key piece of information was the videography. You know, the, mm-hmm. those videos that, that unfortunately, you know, <laughs> I covered it for 18 days. I was in the chair for eight hours a day for 18 days and then I covered the sentencing. So it was on a loop and I had to watch that video over and over again. And there's only so many ways you can kind of dissect it. So, but you go through it and then you're thinking, okay, they captured this moment in time there. And then you compare and contrast that to the Petito case where, you know, the Chauvin case was gritty and it was dirty and it was Mm -hmm. vile. You know, when you see this kind of played Mm -hmm. out Um, and then when you see Petito, it inhabits this insta world mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. everything is beautiful. The sunsets, mm-hmm. they're going through the West. I mean, God, those photos from uh, Utah, you know, places that I've never visited. I've always wanted to go to the Tetons. And unfortunately she went to the Tetons as the last place she ever visited apparently. But yet it, there's this, this kind of falsetta that comes mm-hmm. with it. And, and that's a, I think that that's a broader, a broader kind of commentary relative to the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see this, this vibrant young woman who is, is literally giving you the details of their day-to-day life, this mm-hmm. trip that they're taking. And you see the beauty of everything and every person they're mm-hmm. encountering and they're all smiles. And, but you know, there's, there's that ugliness to it know that and we're just finding out about a lot of it because we still don't have all of the info but there's a real flow beneath there, subterranean that's really nasty I mean Mm -hmm. just we I don't know that we can fully appreciate how vicious this was Mm -hmm. and what was done to her but you know it's not just her because there's this is going on everywhere Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people mask pain you -hmm. know they want to present this and we've heard this this is nothing new under the sun you know people mask their pain in in social media world Mm -hmm. uh, about what they're really experiencing day to day and you have to maintain this this high frequency you know all the time relative to how you appear i'm guilty of it i'm chief among sinners because i'm always presenting stuff on television but you know you you think about you know how many of these folks are crying out in pain Mm -hmm. um and no one ever hears them you know they want to be heard they they won't help many times but because of the life that you know people you know you kind of 
they want people to be envious of what they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, would any of us right now trade places with Gabby Petito? I don't mm-hmm. think so. I know as a father, mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade mm-hmm. places with either one of her dads mm-hmm. or her mm-hmm. mama. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade places with them for mm-hmm. all the gold in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. because it's horrible and it's nasty and it's ugly. And people, I think that for me, I'm that unfortunate dose of reality for a lot of people. Um, because death is real. It, it is real. Mm-hmm. It, it shatters that that wall of falsehood and you know there's things that that make us you know want what we see out there but does anybody really want what she had because i think those those Mm -hmm. those threads run very deep i'm still convinced that she was in a horribly abusive relationship and Mm -hmm. this kid wherever he is he's not Mm -hmm. a kid he's a man um he's floating around out there and they need to put their hands on him immediately in your expertise and everything that you know of the case. Do you think this was something that was intentional? Something that happened that was a continuation of a violent relationship that ended badly, that wasn't an intention or an accident? Mm. And no, I, do you, yeah. are you 100% sure in your gut that he's, it was him? Uh, I can't say that I'm one... The first, the last part. Sorry, lots of questions. That's okay. I cannot 100% say that he is the person. He is a person of interest. Right. And I know based upon my experience with Mm -hmm. handling cases like this and her cause of death, which, you know, the world knows now was strangulation. That's an intimate crime. Mm -hmm. That means that you're up close and personal. And those are those are crimes between intimates where mm-hmm. we're not talking about like a gunshot wound at a great distance where there's, there's nothing involved. We're talking up close and personal. So, um, and one little aside, contrary to what people might think, the lion's share of homicides in this country, they're not some stranger on stranger event. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that's created in fiction. Mm-hmm. They're intimate cases. Mm-hmm. Most of them, you know, there's, and things have been said, you know, like you're you're more at risk with the person you're in bed with than you ever are with some stranger in an mm-hmm. alley because mm-hmm. there's there's so much going on. There's so much so much dynamic. And if people can't figure out how to communicate with one another and live with one another, it, it you know, harm can arise. And I've seen it happen over and over again. Now, um, I think that it is he is certainly a person of interest. He's certainly somebody that needs to be thoroughly questioned Mm -hmm. he needs to be found he needs to be thoroughly questioned and um i my thought is is that um i'm of the belief Mm. let me let me step back and take you guys back in time a little bit Mm. on the 27th of august in utah there was an incident that took place where laundry and Gabby had rolled up to a restaurant and they'd gone into the restaurant um, and he allegedly, according to, uh, to a call, had uh, created a, a fracas in the restaurant, you know, where mm. he's shouting at the wait staff. He goes into mm. the restaurant like four times. I, I have very little patience with people that, that beat up on waitresses, not physically, but, you know, just yelling at mm-hmm. them. It's a hard right. job. Right. Mm-hmm. And she she and this is kind of a classic sign of abuse after he does this and exits 
she rushes back in and apologizes on his behalf. Now, just let that sink in for a second. On that same day, though, that van left there and went 30, 31 miles northeast of that location. And if you've seen the videos, it was on the same day that the family of the vloggers, you know, where they're traveling around, they're videoing mm -hmm. all of their travels. They captured the van at that same time on that same date. And that's the last time she's known a lot. And that van, their van was found there. It was almost immediately adjacent to where Gabby's body was eventually found. So I think that, and I, I'm superimposing here, but perhaps he took exception to the fact that she went in and apologized on his behalf. And it escalated at some point in time. Can you imagine that ride from that restaurant 31 miles away to the end? The, maybe the fight that was going on in the van, maybe the still silence, you know, that awkward silence. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe it was a rage-filled event. But yeah, I think that there is certainly potential that uh, in any kind of relationship like this, they've been on the road for a while, mm -hmm. for a while. And she was separated mm -hmm. from her family. Keep in mind, they lived, he, she was residing with him and his family down in Florida. Her folks lived up in Long Island. And, mm -hmm. you know, she was separate from her, her biological family. You know, she didn't have that support. She was on an island by herself. Mm -hmm. And she had done everything in this. She had worked a couple of jobs. She bought the van. It was her van. She bought, that was her van. And um, they outfitted it, you know, put it together. It, you know, what a great van. It's 2012, but it was pretty cool. It had a little <laughs> bed in it and it was appointed. They'd rip mm -hmm. all the stuff out. And it was a, a labor of love. But you know, the next time he kind of surfaces and let this just kind of sink in, mm. he's using her bank card and she's nowhere to be found. Mm. And I think that was like on the 30th. Mm -hmm. So you got a three day lag at that point. Where is she? My, my thought is she's in Wyoming. He's headed back to mom and dad's house mm. in Florida. And he left her there. This little 95 pound girl, young woman, who mind you, Weeks before, on their same trip, mm. a 9-11 call had come in, and the 9-11 caller said, there is a man in the middle of the street here slapping this little girl around. That's the way she was described by the 9-11. What kind of man puts his hands on, a, on any woman but a 95-pound girl, and he's slapping her? So know, I'd say it's intentional. It was intentional. Like if it was, yeah, it was intentional. Yeah, and it's horrible. I mean, it's, and you know, you, you begin to, I think the thing for me as a parent mm. is that video where she's in the car and she's crying. She's weeping. Mm -hmm. She's got nobody. And he's mm. standing there like a statue outside the vehicle. Mm. And he's acting like he is just perfection. And she's in there and she's apologizing for this guy. She's taking responsibility. You know, as a dad, you just you wish Wanna, you could reach yeah. the screen, mm -hmm. put your arms around her and tell her everything's gonna be okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Just come back with me. Take care of you. Everything's mm -hmm. gonna be okay. I'm gonna get you away from this guy. And you know, there was a park ranger, a federal park ranger that engaged with him at that potential, at that particular time. And she's talking directly to her. And this is it's one of those life-changing moments where you wish she had gone in another direction. The mm -hmm. park ranger looked at her and said, 
you know, this is really a toxic relationship. Are you sure you need to be with him? And for that moment, you just wish that she would say, please take help. me. Mm -hmm. me away. Yeah. And that, and that was a missed moment at that time. And it just, it's heartbreaking. You know, he's, you sit there, you know, the dad in me, I can't help it. Mm -hmm. I'll always be a dad, no matter how old my kids get, mm -hmm. you want to, you want to help them. And I know that her parents feel this way right now. She's a grown mm. woman. I mean, she's living her life, but you know, as a dad, you're, I'm sure they've looked at that video. I know they have, I've been on air with them. Um, her biological father in particular, and he's very brave. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I was just talking, I was just on CNN or HLN just a few months ago. And, um, one of the things that Susan Hendricks and I were talking about the host, um, they did a presser. The family did her family did where, um, the stepfather stepped up to the lectern and he said, I just, we don't have Gabby's remains, but I just want you to know it's fine. It's okay. We want every necessary step taken. We want this resolved. They can mm -hmm. keep her remains mm -hmm. as long as they need to. Now today, there was a little beam of sunshine because it was horrible news, but they came up with a cause of death, a specific mm -hmm. cause. And her remains as of right now, as we're taping this, have been taken to the local mortuary and they're headed home. Mm. They're finally headed home after all these weeks, all this time, she's going to be reunited with her family. Mm. And that's very little solace, I know, but in this tragedy, it's, it's the first like little thing that you can kind of hang on to that finally mm -hmm. they're going to be able to celebrate her life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been, it's been a war. It's been a whirlwind, you know, from my perspective, this isn't about mm -hmm. me, but it's been a whirlwind, uh, you know, relative to the amount of coverage uh, mm -hmm. that, and people all over the world are interested. I've done interviews out of London. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had an article that came out in the sun today mm -hmm. uh, relative to, to this. I mean, people are fully engaged in Europe all around the world. They, they want to know mm -hmm. because it's like this drama that's unfolding. And again, that goes to, the life that was presented, that insta life that was presented. Yeah, it is very dramatic. And I hope that the parents um, can find some, you know, little bit of something, you know, with this new news um, from, a, you know, from a death investigator's point of view, um, we know that her remains were outside for a few weeks. Um, so I would imagine there's some decomposition, right. um, soft tissue um, damage and things like that. How is that process, especially like in this case, when you're trying to find like the cause of death, mm -hmm. like how does that sort of play into it? Does it make it that much more difficult? Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah Roxy, it does. It's, uh, uh, it, it really makes you put on your thinking cap. You have to call upon all of your resources that you mm -hmm. have, not just what you have as an investigator, but you have to call upon, um, you have to call upon other resources. And I, maybe some of your listeners, fans, viewers will, will be aware of every, many people have heard of the body farm. Mm -hmm. That's the place in the University of Tennessee where they do the study of the dead. The people they're training there are actually forensic pathologists. People, I mean, anthropologists. Mm -hmm. They're people that, this, that study bones and mm -hmm. bones in the context uh, from a forensic perspective to try to understand how long someone has been deceased. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's a forensic anthropologist involved in this. Mm. And I suspect that they were probably brought in by the FBI. There's a couple that are like at the Smithsonian. They've also got forensic entomologists 
uh, which study bugs. And they're at the Smithsonian. The mm -hmm. FBI is in this thing up to their eyeballs. They were at the scene. As a matter of fact, the coroner deferred all information to the FBI. He said, mm -hmm. I can't answer that. Consult the FBI. So all of these studies are going on right now. But mm -hmm. from a practical standpoint, when you begin to look at um, look at remains that have been down for a while, it it really makes things difficult because it's just natural. It's 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 a natural course. It's what happens in biology. Things organic things begin to break down, and so because the Earth is trying to reclaim, okay, mm -hmm. that's the nature of what happens. So if there's trauma it's more difficult to appreciate um, when you think, you know, her cause of death has been listed as strangulation. So mm -hmm. things that you look for, and I'll just give a, a very brief tutorial, forgive me mm -hmm. for running on, but oh, I just, yeah. it, it, but when you think about the neck right here, you have in this area, what are called strap muscles and they help you move your head around and that sort of thing, give forward support. Mm -hmm. Then you have your windpipe. It's, you have this cartilage in here. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the things that we look for, you look for hemorrhage in this area. Mm -hmm. You look for the cartilage, mm -hmm. like if you're, you know, like me, a guy, I've got an Adam's apple here that's really mm -hmm. appreciable. And women have them too, but they're a bit more diminutive, you know, that are mm -hmm. right here. You look for fractures in the, in the cartilage right here. And then way up high, you heard about this in the Epstein case, which mm -hmm. I covered quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, you have what's referred to as the hyoid bone. Mm. It's the only bone in the body that's not articulated with any other bone. The only purpose that it serves is to anchor the tongue. And it's shaped like a, uh, kind of like a butterfly, I mm -hmm. guess. Well, not really. Kind of like a, a seagull or the, it's got kind of curved wings like this. And it sits way, way up high. And the only way you can get to it is by seat clamping like this, you're not going to get it with like a noose or something mm. like that. And if this is fractured, you know that manual strangulation has gone on. So we look for trauma in here. The trick is, the trick is with decomposition, how much of this has been compromised mm. through time. And some of the things that will affect are heat, um, mm. you know, because heat impacts everything, as you well know, you know, mm. um, changes in barometric pressure and relative humidity, wind that blows mm. over the body, it can cool the body, it can warm the body, and rain, which is for outdoor cases in forensics, it's one of our biggest enemies. So mm. you begin to think about all of those factors and it, it all comes into this really, really uh, toxic stew, if you will, mm. relative to what you're trying to parse out and, and make a determination because as they move forward with this case, one of the questions that's gonna rise up if they get this guy, if he's still alive mm -hmm. and they go to trial with him, they're going to want to know how long has Gabby been down? Um, what specifically was her cause of death and how did it occur? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, that you look for mm. uh, because that's, that's very important here because his defense attorney, if he is still with us, mm. they're going to put forth this argument that he wasn't capable of doing this or he wasn't there or he would never do this and they'll try to implant reasonable doubt. So you, from Jump Street, you have to try to diminish that kind of damage relative to a case moving mm. forward. And it, in answer to your question, I know we went a long way around the barn, but <laughs> decomposition, certainly it, it's not our friend. Mm. Um, 
And in forensics, you know, there's been a popular television show on air for years and years now called The First 48. Mm -hmm. Well, that mm -hmm. term actually comes from the first 48 is that golden period of time when we're working homicides or any kind of death where you can, your case is either made or blown at that point in time. And so you're, you're thinking about what are you losing and what are you gaining? So we work in linear time. So you have a homicide that occurs here. The further you move past that point in time, mm. the more evidence you lose along the way. And that counts with whether it's physical evidence in the body or DNA that may be left behind or fingerprints where people are smudging them or mm. the potential perpetrator, the suspect getting further and further and further away. And right now we're dealing with all of those elements mm -hmm. in, in this particular case. It's like, if you're going to present a case to a college class to say, mm -hmm. what are the elements here that you need to pay attention to all hands on deck for this one? Because it's like mm -hmm. a perfect storm. What if someone is murdered, mm -hmm. is there a typical mistake that always happens? Like things that someone who murders someone doesn't think of that is so obvious that you can pretty much tell who did it in the first 48 hours? Is it fingerprints that people just don't think about? Or like, is there such thing as like a perfect crime? Mm. Pam, why are you asking me that? Question? I know, <laughs> I was, kind of, I was asking that and I was like, okay, <laughs> well, Sean was kind of Sean, pissing me off out. last night. <laughs> But I'm just always fascinated because no. my husband works a lot in true crime writing and he just says that, you know, some of these people, like he's working on a, a, a TV project right now and they all changed their shoes to be three sizes bigger than their actual feet. And I thought, oh my goodness, like I would obviously never kill anyone, but I would not think of that. <laughs> you know, like what is the common mistake that that is made? Okay, the co most common mistake, I think, many times is that interestingly enough many times people over plan um they mm -hmm. they do it to a fault you've heard the old adage how the killer always always returns to the scene of the crime mm -hmm. I, I can't say that that necessarily happens but um the more you try to plan i think to a great to a certain degree the greater harm because you're overthinking things all right mm -hmm. and then you have people that grievously underthink things you know like uh, for instance uh, i've covered a lot of cases recently where this is the most damning piece mm. of evidence because it goes with you everywhere you go and people mm. forget about it because it's attached to us now in everything we do every place we go it's always chronically attached to us and so it, it you know people get tracked um uh it can follow you everywhere you go and a lot of that goes to also physical evidence like DNA. And now we have such a fine point on um, capturing biological evidence from a DNA perspective. I, I was fortunate enough to meet the surviving victims of the Golden State Killer. I was on a panel with them. These mm -hmm. women that had just endured these horrible things at the hand of this person out there. Um, and you know, what was fascinating about this is that many of those cases took place in the mid seventies. Now just wrap your mind around this for a second. Mm -hmm. The way those things got solved was essentially through DNA evidence, forensic genealogy, where they mm -hmm. were tracking this guy through, you know, peripheral family members. But what happened to begin with was that those detectives out there all those years ago, 
they thought enough to protect that biological evidence, whether it was rape kits, fingerprints, blood evidence that was found at the scene, they protected it. I've seen so many of these cases where they treat, uh, they treat biological evidence like uh, it's, it's uh, titanium and you can't destroy it. And I'm talking about recent cases. And, you know, as again, a little aside, we've got a, a plague in this country uh, with misplacement of rape kits, you know, or they never get processed or they're handled inappropriately. So all of that, all of that evidence is bespoiled. But I'm sorry, Tam, back to your question, are there, I guess, common mistakes are mm. people don't cover their tracks, particularly nowadays, relative mm. to digital evidence. Um, they're not as acutely aware of what we know mm. uh, as forensic scientists, what we can track down looking for biological science or biological sample. And you don't realize it, but let's face it. Skin moisturizers, they've been around for years and years, right? Everybody puts mm -hmm. them on because why? We have dry skin, you know, Jergens mm -hmm. company or whoever it mm -hmm. is that, you know, everybody, do, do you know why you have dry skin? People say, well, it's the weather. I'm genetically predisposed. We, we literally slough over 100,000 skin cells per day. All right, mm -hmm. some of us more. So every time you touch something, you rub up against something, you leave a skin cell behind, we don't require that much DNA any longer to do a profile. We can use what's called touch DNA. So the lightest little touch like this, we can harvest skin, dead skin cells that have a partial strand in it that has been left behind. That's called touch DNA. That's how far we've come when, um, when Sir Alec Jeffries many years ago, he's this British guy that won the Nobel Prize for DNA. Back then, you needed a sample of DNA from a blood spot that was about that size, uh, a U.S. Mm. silver dollar, essentially. Mm. Now, the head of a pen, and maybe smaller. You can How begin do you to find build that? Out. You can How would you find that? It's fascinating. Very carefully. You you look for it. and <laughs> I can't even ways, find an earring, ways, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> a big, exactly. huge always, earring with like a back. I can't even find that. How can you find a pin drop? I know. In that, in that, they they use these special vacuums that they can gather the stuff up with. And so, it's look. There'll never be a perfect prompt. There never will be. Somebody mm. will always find a way to defeat things. But we're we're kind of. I hate to use this term. We're flattening the curve. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of moving forward relative to that. Uh, they don't. They the people that get or try to get away with these horrific crimes. They don't have as much of an advantage. And hey, one thing, defense attorneys are becoming acutely aware of this now. Mm -hmm. They're aware that you can't just throw a little uh, hyperbole and mm -hmm. say, oh, my client never did that. Well, maybe so, but their DNA was deposited there. And now we're mm -hmm. talking, we're not just talking about, you know, um, let's say the most rare blood type in the world we used to do forensic serology is mm. AB pause. Well, that was like one and I don't know, it's like one in 240, 49 people might have mm. AB pause. Now you're talking about DNA. You're up into some cases in the quintillions. Wow. Let that inform the, yeah. the distance we've covered now relative mm. to when we begin to try to single out individuals as to mm. 
were they there? What did they do? How'd they deposit this? All that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a fascinating, it's kind of a fascinating study when you begin to think about it. Just in the time that I've been involved in forensics, we've come light years now from mm -hmm. where, where we were. I cannot even begin to imagine where we're going to be 20 years from now. I, it, the field will be unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's so interesting because we see so much coverage on these high profile cases, um, you know, all over TV and social media. Wanted to get your take on one that was in the news um, not too long ago, very high profile. And you mentioned his name before was Jeffrey Epstein. And, um, you know, the, the report was that he committed suicide in prison. Mm -hmm. But based on the medical findings, in your opinion, do you do you agree with that? Is that possible, or do you think he it was a um, he's you know was killed? I'll I'll put it to you this way. Oh, please. Remember the hyoid bone I told you about mm -hmm. earlier, the wing, the bird-like bone. Mm -hmm. His left greater horn. It's got two horns on it. They're called horns. They're not really horns. They just kind of look like horns. Put your finger, take your right index finger, and put it way way up here. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's where the left horn is. The horn was fractured. It's not the only fracture. If you come down here in his windpipe, in his trachea, this cartilage right here, mm -hmm. there were two fractures there. He hung himself, allegedly, mm -hmm. with strips of cloth that were made from bed linens off of a, a bunk bed mm -hmm. that was five feet tall, mm -hmm. in order to generate that kind of force with a hanging, I, I tried to do, I, there's really no way I can do the math on it, but mm -hmm. when you look at that, you think, well, he would have had to have tied the thing off mm -hmm. and stood on the top bunk, mm -hmm. jumped, grabbed his ankles behind, pulled them up tightly and really got a high arc and fallen. And that piece of cloth would have had to been sufficient to support his body weight falling down because it wasn't just one area that was impacted according to what I've heard and some mm -hmm. of the things that have been talked about on air. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Bodden, uh, mm -hmm. forensic, famous forensic pathologist actually discussed this and what his, his findings were relative to this. I just, I'll have to say, I've never seen that kind of injury with a hanging. I've just, I've never seen it. So we can, you can extrapolate from that what you want. I, you know, I don't know. I know that there were things that went on in that prison. You had guards that were sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, when I saw, if you ever get a chance, there was a 60 minutes piece. You see the interior of his cell. Mm -hmm. There are literally medications everywhere and you know it used to be if you go to prison or you're incarcerated they keep your medicines and they give them to you mm -hmm. as as needs be here's your medicine take your that wasn't the case with him and even on the ground on the floor of his prison cell which is looks like a pigsty mm -hmm. uh there's mattresses laying on the floor stripped up torn up strips of cloth there looks like there's like a CPAP machine on the on the floor as well which is one of these breathing you know things that mm -hmm. people and this is in a federal prison. It, it just, it looked like a pigsty in there, very unkempt. 
and you know, you always have this kind of vision when you're, and I've worked cases in prisons over the course of my career. You always have this vision that it's going to be kind of Spartan, you mm-hmm. know, like you will clean this area up, you know, it's going to be neat and organized mm-hmm. or you're going to get punished. You look at this thing and it was a total, it was just, it looked horrible. I mean, I, I wouldn't ask anybody to live in this environment. Mm-hmm. And don't believe me, go back and look at the 60 minutes piece and you'll see precisely what I'm talking about. And there's stills out there um, on the web of, of the interior of the prison cell. And it's just, it's ghastly to me. Uh, so I think that there's many more questions than there are available answers and they still haven't released the autopsy report. They've released a finding, mm-hmm. but you know, we haven't, you know, we haven't been able mm-hmm. to see. I know that Dr. I think it was Dr. Biden was there on behalf of Epstein's family and he came to a different conclusion than the uh, uh, the New York City medical examiner did. Mm. I know you have to leave soon, so I'm just going to ask this one question, which is, yeah, sure. and I know that murders don't take up a lot of deaths, but it's what we, as humans, are right, right. you know drawn to. Um, but my biggest question is, why do you think people kill? Mm. Why do you think people kill? And I know it might not just be an easy answer, but but you've seen oh, okay. so many no, murders. No, it is an easy answer for me. I think in the majority of cases, because um, because many cases are involving intimates, I think it comes mm-hmm. down to something we talk about all the time, something we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. People, for whatever reason, are stunted in their growth and their ability to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. That's that's what, and it's that seems like an oversimplification, but. When you have people that are solving problems by wrapping their hands around the throat of somebody that they have proclaimed their love for or burying mm-hmm. a knife in their chest, mm-hmm. when they've created a family with them and mm-hmm. blood soaked a room or going through mm-hmm. and their entire family, a lot of it comes down to the inability to talk with one another, to have civil conversations and to forgive, I think, mm-hmm. to a great degree, to be able to live mm-hmm. with one another, embrace one another. And, and do no harm. Mm. I think, you know, that there's, there's a real, there's a real diminishment in the value of life for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see it from the perspective of the death investigator. You know, there, there's some people I've had contact with or cases where, you know, it's, they'll, they'll treat killing somebody as, you know, like scraping gum off of the shoe, off the sole of their shoe. It, it really, there's just a diminishment in life and that's what makes it so tragic and that's what's so terrifying about it because if they Mm -hmm. if they if they are capable of devaluing a life of someone that they proclaim to love Mm. how much more do they devalue strangers Mm -hmm. let that sink in and that's i think that's a big thing and i think people sense that they're they're terrified of it and Mm. you know people like me or you know i'm i'm a scientist by trade and i'm here to just kind of tell the stories that science leaves behind. I, I, I don't, I don't really have a way to explain these bigger issues relative to these horrible crimes. The only explanation I can give is what science is telling me, what I've seen, and I, I my eyes have have not failed me to this point. I mean, I've been tricked a few times, but you know, um, it's many times it's a horror show, and it's it's you. Again, you see things out there that I think that people that that dig true crime and whatnot, they're they're really curious about it. 
because they've heard about it in the news for years and years and they really want to know is is the boogeyman real mm. is this it does it really happen and yeah mm. it does i'm here to testify to it and it's not it's not a ghost story hey mm. you know something i've been around thousands of dead bodies mm-hmm. and people always ask me that question have you ever seen a ghost no i never have i've never had some kind mm. of manifestation around me or anything mm-hmm. like that i've been around a lot of scary people though and I feel more comfortable many times in the morgue around dead bodies than I ever do around living populations mm-hmm. uh, because the harm is done at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it's, it's a curious thing. We'll, we'll always, men and women have always been fascinated by death because mm-hmm. it's that great unknown, like you were talking about, Tam. And no one that we know of has actually come back and mm-hmm. talked about you know, their experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying? There's no scientific validation for it where you can put a number to it. Mm-hmm. All you have to do, it's about faith. And it's, it has to do with, you know, not knowing the unknown. And I don't know that we'll ever know the unknown, at least that is until the day we finally close our eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you, is there, you know, working like you do and with these cases and seeing the things that you do, does it make you think about, does it make you think about your own mortality? Yeah, it does. It does. It, it does. It used to a lot more. Mm-hmm. It makes me, when I watch, when I don't watch true crime, I participated in it so much, mm-hmm. you know, I'm on, you know, I'm on Nancy Grace's show three days a week mm-hmm. uh, on her podcast. Um, of course, I do my own podcast now, and then mm-hmm. I do all of these shows, Dan Abrams Law and Crime and Court TV and HLN, and, you know, I'm about to go appear on on uh, uh, News Nation now uh, mm-hmm. in just a few moments with Ashley Banfield, and there is a real appetite for it, so I talk about it a lot. It makes mm-hmm. me appreciate my times that I have with Seinfeld a lot more mm-hmm. uh, because I can mm-hmm. sit there and just... <laughs> And thank God they yeah. just released everything on the Netflix. So I can watch it as much as I want. Or yes. Or the office. And I'll sit there and that's what I will, that's what I'll, I'll engage in. I have been watching the uh, Macmillions, the Macmillions thing. Is that good? Oh, yeah. It is fascinating. That. Have you seen Schitt's Creek? I have not. I have Oh, not. Joseph, that will make you. Okay. Yes. I need humor. I need humor. Yeah, so you need humor. to like cleanse your brain. You know, it's like take it, away all the things. It's a purgative. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph, you're fascinating. You're incredible, and we're so grateful that you came on our show. Oh, we are blessed favorite. to have you, oh, love <laughs> Nancy Grace and Woman on Top. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we go. know a lot of uh, our listeners are love true crime, but it's you know, like you said, it's so much more than that. We've been able to like humanize the experience by you being able to talk about what it really feels like to see a deceased body and to think about life and death continuously throughout your days. And I'm just grateful that you're here. You've taught me so much. And um, please, can you tell everyone where they can find you next? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, first off, I have uh, uh, I have a podcast. Uh, we're mm-hmm. two weeks in now, and we've been great, getting great numbers. Uh, the name of it is called Body Bags with mm-hmm. Joseph Scott Morgan. And it's um, it's on iHeart. It has been released under the Crime Online banner, which is actually Nancy Grace's banner on her first podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Myself and a friend of mine, Karen Smith, has also got a podcast under the same banner called Shattered Souls. Hers is a limited series. Mine is a weekly 30-minute um, segment. And all we do, I, I take like the biggest cases that are going on right now and break down the forensics. I don't get into all the peripheral stuff that goes along mm-hmm. with it. I just try to teach. I try to teach people forensic science because 
I, I really take exception to people that that think that folks can't learn. They can't learn science. Mm -hmm. And it's my way of kind of conveying basic science to folks through death and being able to understand form and function relative to forensic science in, in the world that I inhabit. So we've had some really good returns. I'm very pleased. It's on iHeart. It's on Apple. Great. It's on Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, and very pleased with that. And uh, some other cool things. Uh, Sean and I are working on a little thing called the Doherty Gang right now. Another podcast. What's that little thing? Oh, boy. I tell you. It's taken years. Can we just get that movie out now? <laughs> well, the podcast is out right now. And again, Oh, I'm yes, that's EP, right. The I'm an EP is on it and so grateful for this opportunity to work with Sean. Very excited. Movie's coming soon. Very mm -hmm. happy about that. Uh, we've worked on the Piketon Massacre uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. I hear certain things about it. Very excited about that. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, I've got a project that'll be dropping next month. Um, and I'll tell you what, at that time, I'll let you guys know about it and you can push it out via your yes you can come back on here yes. <laughs> yes i'm on twitter at medco legal death and Amazing. i'm on instagram and uh i'm out here floating around yeah nice. well Very thank nice. you guys so much yes. please comment and let us know any other guests you would like to see that are just as amazing as joseph scott morgan <laughs> and you guys can find us on women on top official on instagram and women on top podcast on facebook and our women on top group on clubhouse and don't forget please to rate subscribe and comment on comment. your favorite podcast app right yes. so we can keep bringing amazing guests like joseph on Thank you guys so much. I am. How should we do this? Uh, I'm gonna do. An, I'm gonna do an accent oh, like Joseph. Um, I am. I don't. Uh, uh, no English. I am Taman Sersok. And I'm gonna bring out my Texas twang. And I am Roxanne Manning. <laughs> and we are <laughs> women. women.